You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views, the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites, and is brought to you by Jet Charge, Australia's leading experts in EV charging. Operating nationwide, Jet Charge helps maximise the use of renewable energy and is paving the way for our electric future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of The Driven and also Renew Economy and One Step Off the Grid. It's my delight to welcome uh, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull to the microphone. Um, Malcolm, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you, Giles. You visited the Tesla factory in Fremont, I think it was back in 2015, and you were very effusive about the Tesla technology and the factory. It was a converted, mm. uh, oh, I can't remember now, it was a converted Toyota plant? I think it was a converted, uh, I think it was a converted Ford plant. <laughs> and you took it for a test drive and you yep. were pretty effusive. Um, but I just discovered now that it's only now that you've actually decided to go out or your family's decided to go out and buy your first ev why the delay oh well i'm not sure i you know we've um owned lots of hybrids before um but uh but yeah this is the first sort of full fully uh electric you know ev proper uh mm-hmm. that we bought yeah so it's a lucy's uh ordered a tesla three so the city one yeah and what's uh, and what's suddenly motivated to do that? I, I just I, I'm not sure, Giles. It's it honestly, it's it is uh, just uh, just you know, Luce has been driving a plug-in hybrid, um, mm. uh, which has a limited, you know, EV only range. But um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sure. But it's I think it's uh, you know, it's it's, it's a look. It's it, it, it's very exciting, uh, and you know, I mean, as Australia adopts EVs uh, increasingly, you know, and and is realising Australians are realising this does not abolish the weekend. Uh, so, um, you know, it's amazing. It's, a, it's yes. amazing. It works. How the much technology do you- works. It does. Technology does indeed work. How damaging do you think that comments like, you know, EVs will ruin your weekend and you can't tow a boat and things like that? How, how much damage does that do to an industry? Because a lot of Australians... Oh, it was like- terrible. It was... Look, the, 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 the 2019 election was... I mean, we say this literally on the cusp of the uh, 2022 election, which who knows could be worse. But, but the 2019 election was just terrible. I mean, the... the the lies that were told all round, but you know, on on the electric vehicle stuff, it was it was you know insane. I mean, just the the the, the coalition, you know, Morrison and and others were saying things about electric vehicles which they must have known to be complete rubbish. I mean, they're not morons, right? They're not morons. They know they knew they knew it was rubbish, but they said it. News Corp. And other media dutifully amplified it, uh, and it was just in, it was just madness. But anyway, there it is. If they know it to be wrong, why are they saying these things? Because there's a constant wonder. Because it works, Charles. Because it works. Works politically. It works. Mm. It works. See, look, the the problem, the, the problem. One of the biggest problems we've got in politics, and it has been exacerbated by Scott Morrison, I think, clearly. And you know, I'm not. Look, I I don't want to 
spend this podcast bagging him, but but you know he abs- Scott Scott is the marketing guy, right? I mean, he's oh. all tactics. Doesn't really have any ob- policy objectives. Uh, he just wants to stay prime. Just wants to keep winning elections. So it's all about tactics, and he will do whatever works. You know, one of his closest friends is Graham Richardson. You know, the Labor Party. Um, you know, uh, you know, I'm operator who fixer, yeah, who you know, who who said, you know, who wrote a book. I think it's called Whatever It Takes. You know, so so that's the mindset you're coming from. Um, and what we've had, what's happened in recent times is that lying has been normalised. Now, it's not just you know, it's like. Both sides of politics are guilty of this, but I, although I, you know, I have to say, I think Morrison's probably taken it to to the heights. I mean, I had a taste of this in 2016, you know, when the Labor Party ran the Medi-Scare, you know, and said mm-hmm. the Liberal Party is going to sell Medicare. Well, I mean, obviously, you can't sell Medicare. It's not it's not something that is even remotely saleable. But they ran uh, that lie. Uh, targeted it particularly at uh, low, what they call tactfully low information voters, which is basically means people with less education, less income. So they tend to be poorer, older, sicker and less informed. And it worked a treat and probably cost us five or six seats in that election. So so um, now what happened was that the, you know, rest the, the mainstream media you know, 7.30 report and so forth, called it out. Shorten was ridiculed in a lot of quarters for persisting with this lie. A lot of people in Labor were embarrassed by it, but, boy, it worked for them. And so, you know, then, of course, by this stage, Trump was coming on the scene and, you know, he, he absolutely had no filters, would say anything, and that then you got that in 2019 with the, uh, EVs, you know the 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 lies about electric vehicles, and um, and and I think I, I, I'll, I'll I'll make this point. I think that the a lesson from that is that if you particularly if you are if you're a business or an industry, uh, and you are naturally reluctantly reluctant to get involved in a political in the middle of a political contest because a you're not in you're not politicians and b you know you you have to work with both sides and you know you recognize that over time you know there'll be one party in and one party out and then they'll swap sides and you know so so you don't want to get into a partisan situation but what the point you flagged at the outset is a very powerful one because i think that election did a huge amount of damage to the credibility of electric vehicles in Australia. Uh, it really hurt the industry. It was obviously, uh, you know, bad from an environmental point of view. Um, and, you know, really the the EV industry and the EV companies, uh, particularly Tesla, should have been coming out very loud and proud and just saying, bullshit. We're we're, we're not telling you how to vote, ladies and gentlemen, but what the Prime Minister just said is bullshit. And and just call it out and and, and put the facts on the table. I mean, obviously, you can't just say bullshit and walk away. You've actually got to say why it's bullshit. But I I, I think the 
Um, the, the other thing I'd say, I'd just throw this in as an observation. There, ha- there used to be uh, in politics a view that when you were faced with an outrageous claim, you know, that was self-evidently or you thought was self-evidently exaggerated or over the top or whatever, you were better off not responding to it and letting it go through to the keeper because if you did respond to it, you will you will uh, increase its salience. You'll give mm-hmm. it oxygen. Now, you know, that was actually the advice I had, I was getting from very experienced pollsters and, you know, political gurus in the 2016 campaign about Mediscare, and we, we realised that was wrong. In the age of viral information, in an age where lying has been normalised, in an age where a lot of people seem to be happy to be paid to be lied to, you falsehoods will just go completely viral. You know, as yeah. the old saying used to be, you know, a lie is halfway around the world before truth has got its boots on. Well, it's, you know, it's it's not halfway around the world, it's around the world 20 times now. And so so I think the when those sort of falsehoods are brought up, I think the people, and it's brought up about an industry or a company, you, you can't be mealy-mouthed about it. The, even if it is in the middle of an election, you've got to be prepared to come out and say, this is wrong. I don't care whether you're the Prime Minister, the Leader of the Opposition or the Minister for, you know, whatever. What you're saying is false for the following reasons, A, B, C, and set them out. It's interesting that we've actually seen some high-profile businessmen do exactly that over the last couple of years. We've seen uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks, for one, the, uh, the, the tech billionaire. Um, Dan Andrew Forrest has recently and, been very, very blunt. Disclosed there that you're, you're chairman of his Fortescue Future Industries. How important is that? Because um, at, um, both, both Cannon-Brooks and Forrest, they've actually gone out and they've actually said, this is bullshit, we're challenging this, this is wrong. We've got yeah. to go the other way. Well, yeah, I think, it's, I think it is important. Um, and I think the public, the public, you know, the 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 sort of old style thing that you know business leaders would say, oh, I don't want to get involved in politics. I'd rather work through you know back channels and you know whisper, whisper, whisper. I mean, you just get slaughtered if you do that. And and, and you've essentially the only way to stop people lying is to stop them getting away with it, okay? Mm. Because, mm. because you, see, you see, I, look, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, put my, I'm, I'm, I'll just, just, I'm being, you know, I'm retired. I can be completely frank with you, okay? <laughs> so I'll just tell, just tell you the truth. I've always been anxious about getting my facts wrong. I don't know whether this is because I had, as a young journalist, I had <clears throat> sub-editors who used to tell me up when I got something wrong or whether as a young lawyer, you know, judges would be merciless <laughs> if uh, if you you know got the case wrong or you know proposition wrong, and you know even in politics, I mean, I, I I certainly never set out to lie, and I've never had a reputation for being a liar, like unlike many others. Um, but even if I got a number wrong or a fact wrong, I'd be mortified by it genuinely, mm. and and that's that's actually quite tough because if you're the PM, you get asked about everything. You can be asked about anything, anytime. So, you know, it's not just the price of milk, but, you know, like detailed things about, 
you know, defence procurement or whatever. Anyway, now <clears throat> what I've noticed, so, so, I, so I cared about it. What I've noticed is that a lot of people increasingly don't care at all. And they've gone from not caring about whether they've got something right, in other words, not caring whether, you know, they check the facts or the numbers, to the point where they'll literally make stuff up. And the only way to stop that is to make, have consequences. And that means you've got to call people out and and actually, um, but, but when you call them out, you've got to put out the proof points and you've got to do it fast, you know, so you need to be using social media and other and also direct digital channels you know that, that, that's a big challenge isn't it because it demands on lots of lots of resources i mean we've seen this with the climate change debate over the last couple of decades this sort of um this sort of deliberate attempt to you know, to mislead and to divert send people down long sort of um, gully ways chasing oh, yeah. which is clearly wrong but takes time to disprove well it does i mean michael mann's written a very good book about this uh you know about you know his latest book about i think it's called the is it called the new climate war or the mm. latest climate war but anyway it's his latest book it's a lot in there about media particularly the murdoch media and all of the tactics you know of distraction look over there um and and you can see you know how how successful some of this stuff has been i mean you, you, i mean we're moving away from global warming but uh, a little bit but you look at plastics right i mean what a curse plastic in the environment, particularly in the ocean, has become. And just so much damage and so much damage that, you know, we may, well, damage we can, we, the best thing we can do is probably stop doing it because a lot of it, the microplastics, it's difficult to see how you could ever remove them. Anyway, um, one of the great cons of the plastic industry was was recycling, was saying, oh, it's okay. It's okay to have a huge amount of plastic in the waste stream because we can recycle it. And that made it, gave everyone a good feeling, except it wasn't true. You know, we recycle, I think, about 15% of plastic. Oh. So, it's, so, you know, the answer to plastic is not putting it into the waste stream in the first place. Oh. And, 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 you know, this, and it is, it's like carbon capture and storage. Now, you know, there, I, I, you know, I have to say, honestly, there was a time, you know, 15 plus years ago when we we in meaning people in government like myself i was the environment minister genuinely believed that carbon capture and storage was prospective you know the csiro oh. was saying it could be done for 30 dollars a ton of co2 and all that stuff look it just it hasn't worked but they're still talking about it it is on it's it is honestly like groundhog day and <laughs> and so so you you know you say hang on that isn't that the isn't that the BS that we we sort of concluded after umpteen years and lots of evidence was BS last year? Isn't that why is this coming back? I mean, talk about recycling. Yes. Um, and, and so you had, of course, the you know the ultimate surreal moment at uh, the Copenhagen COP uh, was the Australian Pavilion, where you know the the, the major exhibit was. Um, uh, something from uh, Santos. So we were featuring a gas company at our national pavilion at a climate change conference, the object of which was to accelerate uh, the rate at which we stopped burning coal and gas. 
Yeah, the, 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 Glasgow, the Glasgow conference, I just point out. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah, the Glasgow yeah. COP. Yeah, this is just, just last November. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was, that, was, that was pretty wild stuff. <laughs> just um, I'd like to go to talk into some other stuff, but just just um, just one more question about the political process too, because you talked about this sort of, you know, this sort of uh, state where lying has become almost the sort of the official currency of sort of political debate, which has been yeah. which is really really frustrating, um, amplified by Trump and sort of followed by the likes of Morrison and others. Yeah. In your own time as Prime Minister, clearly you you have spoken your mind from the backbench before you became Prime Minister, and you have most certainly spoken your mind since um, leaving politics. Can you just remind us what it is about the political process or about your particular situation that you are unable to speak your mind in the way that many people wanted you to do while you were Prime Minister? And well, well, I, I okay, well, well, Giles, I I don't I don't think I was you know muted or constrained in what I said as Prime Minister, mm. other than in the sense that, you know, when you are managing a coalition, you're managing trying to get things through the House, through the party room, through the Senate, uh, you know, you, you, you can't, you don't have the freedom to say exactly what you think whenever you want it. You know, you've just got to be smart about it. Uh, mm. And, uh, but I, you know, I don't... Uh, you know, I don't sort of feel, or I, I know, I, I don't, didn't ever, um, you know, say things I didn't believe in, or, or, um, uh, you know, say things about global warming or climate or energy policy in particular that was untrue. So, there must have been things that you wanted to do but you couldn't do. Oh well, it's, of course, there's, 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 listen, there's, I would have liked, yeah, I would have liked to have got the neg through, right? I mean. Mm. Uh, I, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I wish I, I would have liked to have had a an emissions trading scheme. You know, that's why I fought so hard for it in 2009. But, you know, I mean, I mean, most people uh, in the, you know, who are economically literate will tell you, including Angus Taylor, he used to say this to me before he was in politics, I might have. I mean, uh, will tell you that an economy-wide price on carbon is, the most efficient means to achieve economy-wide abatement, but you know that has been that has been in the you know thanks to Tony Abbott uh, and others that's gone into the political too hard basket for a long time. Having said that, you know as I as I've also observed, and it is true, you know emissions trading schemes have tended to work better in theory than practice. They're they're you know they'd like a lot of good ideas. They're hard hard to implement, and in in some respect the you know i'm just you, you can make a case that the need for an ets at least in the electricity sector the energy sector is not as is not as great as it was because renewables are so much cheaper mm. um you know it's i mean the the challenges i see in the energy transition uh relate more to things like uh, long duration storage, which is a great interest of mine. Now, you know, I have to give the New South Wales government and the Minister Matt Keane great credit for the designing, or, you know, he, I mean, he didn't design it himself, but he, you know, he presided over the designing of, um, you know, policies that, that will deliver uh, substantial amounts of long duration storage, which the provision of which is vitally important to deliver the energy transition everywhere. But 
I, I as as far as I'm aware, um, New South Wales is the jurisdiction in the world that is in the lead in terms of developing market-based policies that will encourage the private sector to provide long-duration electricity storage. I mean, of course, you can do it, you know, the way it's done in China or as I did it as Prime Minister and just, you know, have the government do it. You know, that's the... That is, I mean, I did, I did uh, uh, socialise the means of production, you know, or nationalise the means of production with when I nationalised Snowy Hydro, but an unusual um, thing for a Liberal Prime Minister to do. But, but you know, that, that was sui generis. So you've got to have a mechanism. You've got to basically say, okay, we're going to move into a world where there's no thermal generation, where we're not going to generate electricity uh, from burning coal or gas. Fair enough. In Australia, where we don't have nuclear power and unlikely to have any, you know, any time soon, uh, that means we actually don't have any continuous generation because we don't have run of river hydro. Uh, so what that means is we're going to have a lot of variable renewable energy, zero marginal cost generation, but we're going to have to be able to back that up. And unless we want to keep a lot of gas peakers or unless we want to Convert and convert them presumably to green hydrogen, we are going to need uh, storage. So we're going to need short-term storage, batteries. We're going to need medium-term storage, which could include batteries. We're going to need a lot of long-duration storage, which realistically can only be pumped hydro. So, uh, And that takes time to build. So we've got to get cracking. And uh, that's, you know, one of the drums I've been banging. I mean, I obviously I, I got, got on the the case with snowy too but uh we're going to have to do a lot more of it yeah the, the, the forecast that um um is really interesting there's a really bold forecast going around at the moment aemo um basically sort of preparing the grid for a transition to as close as 100 percent renewables possibly within the decade uh, matt mm. keen as you mentioned sort of trying to get the new south wales ready uh because it could possibly have four or even all five of its coal-fired power stations exiting within the next 10 years are you confident about the, I mean, what what the government has needed to do is to lead and to actually sort of set those principles, yeah. um, set the market design. Matt Keen has very much had to sort of intervene in the market and sort of say, okay, this is the way we're going to do it and this is what's going to happen. It's very much been a hands-on. Yeah, look, 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 ultimately, Giles, you, you, this is what you've got to do. You've got to say, you've got to sit down and analyse the market in a world without thermal generation and in particular with that continuous thermal generation. Uh, so, and then say, all right, let's make some assumptions about renewables. Let's make, run some scenarios, you know, where we have days, very cloudy days and no wind. Um, you know, what the Germans call Dunkelflater. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, and then work out how much pumped, how much pumped hydro we're going to need you know, and for what durations. And then you have a competitive process to make sure that it's built. And that's what the LTSs are designed to do. So, you know, they will get that they will deliver um, uh, a large amount. I mean, and the question is going to be whether it's, whether they, how you know, whether they're getting enough built or they should get more built. But, you know, that's what emerges out of the analysis. And, you know, AEMO is, you know, is sort of supervising this. But you work out how much you need and then you provide a 
underwriting, capacity payment, whatever, to provide the uh, the certainty because one of the difficulties with any new technology, and I mean, pumped hydro is not new, by the way, it's anything mm. but, but it is in this, in you know, in living memory, it's new. Um, you've got to provide the, uh, I don't know, I guess the certainty to encourage people to lend uh, and that will then, you'll then get the, uh, you know, pumped hydro bill. And and that's yeah. what the Eltessa scheme does. And I, I mean, they haven't finalised it yet, and they're still working on it and consulting. But I think it's very, imp- I think it's very important. And because there's no, there's, look, you know, as Andrew Blakers, who I'm sure has spoken to you on this podcast, has demonstrated. You know, there are thousands and thousands of sites to do off-river closed-loop pump storage, and you know, it can, it could be just two. You know, two turkeys nest dams, one on the bottom of the hill, one on the top of the hill uh, that you build. It could be a typical one of the kind that Water New South Wales is sort of, you know, seeking, uh, in you know, interest in is a classic design turkeys nest dam on top of the ridge next to an existing reservoir. Hmm. Um, you know, Scotland's got a number of those and they're building a lot more. So you know the ideal is a, an existing reservoir with with a big hill next to it with steep sides. So you know, to... yeah, yeah you, you play a prominent role in the sort of international pumped hydro association. I think it's probably not the right name of the actual organisation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, there's actually there isn't an international pumped hydro association, but there probably should be. Uh, the the I'm a director of the International Hydro Power Association, IHA, yeah. which of which the present, which is the global industry body. Uh, the president is actually another Australian uh, Tasmanian hydro engineer called Roger Gill, uh, and uh, my sort of pitch in that arena is uh, on pump storage. I chaired a commission, co-chaired a commission with the US government and the IHA on long duration storage, which reported recently, and I'm speaking. Uh, on the um, 6th of April uh, in Washington at uh, a big hydropower conference on this precisely this topic. So we, we, we talk about it a lot. We talk about it a lot then and, and the need for long duration storage, but how much is actually being built? Um, I mean, maybe New South Wales is maybe one of the most yeah. advanced. Um, well, well, in terms of what is actually being built, you know, in the sense of, you know, people digging holes and doing things, in Australia at the moment, it's just Gen X, the project in Queensland, yeah. uh, you know, the old gold Snow. mine, and, and Snowy too, which, of course, yeah. is very big. Uh, but there are a number of projects um, under development, and, you know, I'm, it's something I'm keenly interested in. Um, the, you know, uh, Origins obviously got an a opportunity to augment their Shoalhaven pump storage. There's a bunch of them. Uh, in terms of... Uh, the United States, there's actually nothing under construction in the US on pump storage, but a lot of activity. There's a lot being built in China, a huge amount. Uh, and the there is uh, quite a bit being built in Japan. Um, and a lot of people are very alert to it. But I'd have to say, I think the, I, I, I think that oh, there's a quite a bit being built in Israel, actually. Um, there's a look that it, the, the, it's the usual, um, 
it's the usual thing, you know, people are waking up to the necessity. I call it the ignored crisis within the energy crisis. Uh, and then um, they'll, they will wake up finally and in a panic and start trying to do things in a rush. But the problem is that you can't, you know, you, you, Moore's law does not apply to digging holes. So you can't, you know, build, you know, dams and penstocks and, you know, underground right. turbine caverns, you know, in, in six months. So yeah. anyway, um, we, we've just, the, the, there's no point lamenting the fact that we haven't done things in the past. I mean, I, I'm very disappointed that my uh, esteemed successor, Mr. Morrison, and his colleagues, and particularly Angus Taylor, the energy minister, have not delivered the battery of the nation. You know, that I, and at the same time as I announced uh, Snowy 2 in 2017, you know, that is at least being built. Um, the We talked about, uh, you know, the concept, the big idea of battery of the nation, which is the idea that you use the phenomenal renewable assets in Tassie, which, you know, print particularly wind, and couple that with the hydro Tasmania's hydro assets, incorporate some uh, additional pump storage, um, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure there and build a second link, the Marinus link, and hey, presto, Tasmania becomes the battery of the nation. Well, you know, the, every, everyone's in favour of it. <laughs> There's no one against it. Well, not quite everyone. It hasn't been built. <laughs> it hasn't been built, you know. I mean, if goodwill, if, 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 if goodwill and approbation uh, could... Um, could build things it would have been built years ago but so yeah, i yeah. you know ultimately ultimately you've got to get in and do things and th and this is I, I think again where the the sort of um you know one of the critiques that morrison faces from his opponents has got some merit you know where they say well he makes an announcement and then nothing happens uh, well, exactly no, no, nothing has happened, um, and particularly in the energy thing, particularly in, in this um, dispatchable capacity. Angus Taylor made a big deal of it when he was mm. um, became mm. energy minister, but has done basically nothing about it apart from possibly the curry curry gas generator, which is very, which popular. virtually, which which hardly anyone thinks is a good idea, right? I mean, exactly. it's a, you know, I I I, I think it's a, you know, and I mean the gas led recovery. My God, what a dog that was. What has he achieved apart from unifying everyone, um, as I think you said a couple of weeks ago, in, yeah. um, in disagreeing with him? <laughs> no, he has. He's, uh, he has. He's united the energy sector. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> you play a critical role also in um, Andrew Forrest's plan in um, green hydrogen and Fortescue Future Industries. What exactly is your role there? And, and yeah, well, well, I, can I can I just say the the Andrew is you know is is the great visionary and realizer of that of that vision and he has a phenomenal team you know julie shuttleworth is chief executive uh and and many others a big team i i i have i have a tiny part to play with um mm. uh that i i'll tell you what i am i'm a non-executive director i'm the non-executive chairman of australian fortescue future industries so i'm you know effectively an advisor uh i'm also the chairman of the Green Hydrogen Organisation, uh, which is a 
like the IHA, is a global organisation, but it's a new one. And um, we have a CEO, Jonas Moberg, who's based in Geneva and, you know, a growing team and members. We've got, you know, whole range, you know, big big ut European utilities. We've got Korean, you know, industry. Hyundai's on the board. ThyssenKrupp, the steelmakers, are on the board. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's developing into a big global advocacy group. And our mission is to uh, agree and set the standards for green hydrogen, you know, what actually it does green hydrogen mean, um, and also to really make the case, which you would have heard me and, and Andrew particularly talking about this, make the case for green hydrogen as opposed to the uh, BS of so-called blue hydrogen, you know, which is where you take the um, process, steam methane reformation process um, of, um, you know, taking methane, CH4, and, you know, heating it up, superheating it up with, you know, and steam uh, in a process that, that gets you hydrogen for sure, but it also gets you a lot of CO2 and not to speak of the methane leakage. So it's really bad from a climate point of view. Uh, but th that's how almost all of the world's hydrogen is produced. And the people that make it that way, fossil fuel sector, they say, oh, don't worry, we will take the CO2 from the, you know, our current operations and stick it under the ground somewhere. And so it's, you know, our old friend carbon capture and storage. So, so you know, they say blue hydrogen is clean hydrogen. Well, it's about as clean as clean coal is, you know, mm. so... So it's not clean at all. And, mm. and, and look, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to discourage people from having a go. I mean, if CCS could ever be made to work, that would be a good thing undoubtedly. And there are some areas where it could be, play a very important role. But in terms of government policy, as we actually know how to make green hydrogen, I mean, it, and, and, we've all, and have done, most of us would have done it in our um, science classes, um, you, we're really talking about optimising a process that's well understood, which is essentially using renewable energy to electrolyse water and split the oxygen from the hydrogen. That's it. That, that's, that's what you're doing. Now, obviously, you've got to do that at huge scale. You've got to do that at much lower cost. And that's what Andrew is focused on. And, and that's what government policy should be supporting. But, you know, wasting money and 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 in australia we're talking about a lot of money on so-called blue hydrogen simply so that you can keep the gas industry alive i mean for heaven's sake we, we're trying to put the gas industry out of business i know we need gas today i know particularly we need it in the mm. you know in the wake of putin's invasion of ukraine and the sanctions on on russia but but the object of the energy transition you know drum roll wait for it, ladies and gentlemen, is to stop burning coal and gas. I mean, there are other things that are part of it too, but, but it is to exactly. stop burning fossil fuels. And so any sort of, you know, these solutions, it's a, it's a bit like, um, you know, going back to what I was saying about plastic. You know, someone says, we want to get plastic out of the waste stream. Okay, stop using so much plastic. Oh, no, they say. No, we'll use more plastic, but we'll recycle it. And you say, but hang on, you're actually not recycling it at all. So, you know, we, we can't lose sight of the prize. And, and the good thing is, the encouraging thing is, 
we have the technology to complete the mission. We don't need to invent something. You know, we can have a zero-emission electricity sector in Australia, and we can have a zero-emission energy sector in Australia. Um, we, we've got the tools to do it. And now, I've got no doubt we'll get new tools and improved tools and things will get cheaper and more efficient, but we can actually do it now. And so there's, mm. there's literally no excuse for delay. Yeah. We're um, probably just running out of time now. Um, just a couple of quick last questions and might not be quite so quick in the end, sure. but um, we're about to have an election called. Um, what's your prediction of what's going to happen, if it's possible to predict anything um, in politics anymore, uh, or, mm. or what maybe should happen? <laughs> well, look, I, you know, I, I have um, obviously been criti I've been critical of, of a number of the things uh, Scott Morrison has done, and um, but I'm, but you know, I'm, I'm a member. I remain a member of the Liberal Party. I'm a former leader of the Liberal Party, uh, but I'm also an Australian citizen, and I reserve the right to criticise any government of any description. I haven't been nearly as critical of Scott Morrison as Connie Ferravanti Wells, I might say. Uh, but the, but the, um, uh, look, I think it's look. It will all. It's going to be close, Giles. Federal elections are always close. Um, you'd have to say, if you're a betting person, Labor would be favourites, but I I'm certainly don't think they've got it in the bag. Oh. Um, I think it's going to be... What I'm particularly interested in is what happens with the independents. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, that there is basically a market failure, political market failure in many hitherto safe liberal electorates where the people who have voted liberal all their lives you know in my own electorate old electorate of Wentworth people who you know voted for me I had you know a two-party preferred vote of 67 percent or something like that you know massive majority there um, a lot of those people look at Morrison and Joyce and the current government and they say these guys don't represent our values this is not us and it's not because they're left-wing it's because they're not left-wing it's because they um, you know, want to protect the planet. Uh, they, you know, they they understand that we need to stop emitting, you know, greenhouse gases. And we've, you know, they, I mean, they're, they're kind of socially and environmentally progressive and responsible. And so then, so they're tearing their hair out about that. And then along comes independent candidates who are uh, smaller liberals, environmentally responsible, uh, socially progressive, like they don't, you know, they they don't, uh, you know, they're not trying to run, run culture wars on sky after dark. And traditional liberal voters look at them and they say, wow, that's the type of candidate um, that the Liberal Party should be should be endorsing. I mean, that that's what they're saying, the type of things that we'd, we'd like to hear from the Liberal Party, and they might say that's the sort of thing Malcolm used to say if they, you know, that, that sounds a bit like, you know, the, the previous Prime Minister. So I, I, I think, so so basically, you know, you're getting a situation where these independents are not Labor fronts, I mean, or Greens fronts. That is just, that is an insult to people's intelligence. It is essentially a re it response to the fact that many traditional Larger liberal voters feel the larger liberal party 
no longer speaks to their values. I remember writing almost a decade ago now about the possibility of one Malcolm Turnbull leading something called the Liberal Environment Party, which came into power <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sort of yeah. but, uh, well, look, uh, so, so might the best outcome be then a party, a government, whichever one it is, sort of um, dealing with a um, balance of power being held by climate independence? Well, if you watch, look, if you look at the quality of the independent candidates, um, you know, Zali Stegall, um, you know, Beck Sharkey, Helen Haynes, they're the ones that are there that, you know, the, the people who are occupying hitherto safe liberal seats. These, these, those three women in particular, um, they would be out, if they were in, in either of the major parties' party rooms, they would be star players, right? Oh. In a you know in a competitive environment. Look, and I, I, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on many things, but I do understand how the parliament, the party political system works. They are absolutely top quality, mm. you know, political players, you know, and good communicators, very smart, integrity, all of those things. Then you look at Allegra Spender in Wentworth. I mean you know, Cambridge economist, business background, etc. These are people that, that if, if they were in positions of influence on a crossbench, how could that not be a good outcome for Australia? They're not, you know, I mean, sometimes people have got this idea that, that an independent is a, you know, crazy person. And look, there have been a few crazy independents in the past. Yeah. You know, like sometimes, you know, when one remember when One Nation had a whole bunch of seats in the um, uh, Queensland Parliament, and you know, some of the One Nation um, senators that they've had it, we've had in Canberra are pretty uh, uh, eccentric, eccentric. Let's just say highly eccentric, <laughs> and not, necess not necessarily uh, interested in evidence-based policy. But the people that are running and as these, you know, you've called them climate independents and, you know, I'm not sure whether that's the term they'd use themselves, but they, but these are high quality candidates. I mean, Zoe Daniel in uh, running against Tim Wilson in Goldstein. Zoe Daniel is so impressive. Uh, so the idea that the parliament would not be, uh, that these people would not play a very positive role in the parliament is very naive and the people you know rather than you know grinding their teeth and saying well it's all the labor front the liberal party should be asking why are people with these values and this intellect and this these skills why are they running and why are so many of pe people who used to vote for the larger liberal party going to vote for them and that's actually the Liberal Party's failure. I mean, and I look, I used to make, when I was PM, I used to make this point to my colleagues all the time. I used to point to Cathy McGowan, Beck Sharkey, and I used to say, those two, these two women are smaller liberals. They're socially progressive. They take climate change seriously and they are holding liberal seats that were so safe at an election, you know, the party might spend, you know, mm -hmm. 50 or 100 grand on some core flutes and how to vote cards. It was, it, and now, you know, they're gone. 
that the seats are, are basically impossible to win back. And and it is and and it is the the Liberal Party has got to acknowledge this is their its its failure, its base. You see, see, if you take the view, as some people in the Liberal Party do, that the base of the party is the people who, you know, think Alan Jones and Peter Credlin and you know Ray Hadley are the sum total of all political wisdom, and Peter Dutton is just the sort of person that should be Prime Minister of Australia. That is not actually the base of the Liberal Party. That is maybe the base of two GPs. It's not, and it's certainly not the base of the Liberal Party in these, uh, in in so many of its safe electorates. And so the independents are basically, they're basically providing the Liberal with a small L candidates that previously larger Liberal voters uh, want to vote for. And and you know so that so how, now how those electorates play out, there's a lot of it's a lot more complex. I mean it's I've talked for a while about it. It sounds complex. It's much more complex than even that. But that's I think in many ways going to be probably the most interesting uh, aspect of this. Yes. Does Allegra have? Does Allegra have, spend to have your vote? I'm I'm a, ret- a retired uh, politician. And so I, I'm keeping. I'm staying out. I'm staying out of the election. I, 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 let, let me explain, Giles, because it's. I think it's important to be very frank about it. Look, I'm staying out of the election. I'm not telling people who to vote for. Um, the. I mean. I, I mean. I know. I know Dave Sharma, the Liberal member. Well, you know, he's a good guy. Uh, I, I know. I've known Allegra Spender. You know, since she was a schoolgirl. In fact, she used to babysit uh, our daughter uh, when she was. Uh, when Daisy was a little, tiny little girl. So I've known her and her family for a long time. Uh, she'd, she'd be a fantastic member of Parliament, no question about that. But I'm not going to say who I'm going to vote for. I'm not going to tell people to vote for one candidate or another. I wouldn't want to get, I particularly wouldn't want to get into a situation where I was, um, you know, actively campaigning against the Liberal candidate in, say, Wentworth, where so many, there are so many people who are still supporting the Liberal Party uh, who used to support me and work with me. So I think the best thing for me to do is people know my views on the issues. Uh, the best thing for me to do is just to, mm-hmm. as best I can, in my try to be uh, dignified in my old age and stay out of the... Uh, political contest, but uh, but but I'm I'm prepared to deal with issues, and I'll certainly correct falsehoods. And if people, and I'm happy to call out a bit of bullshit yeah. when I see it. Well, you might get very busy doing that. Um, let's yeah. um, okay. Um, let, let's let's finish where we started, which is on electric vehicles. You say that Lucy's um, ordered her Tesla Model Three. I, I don't know when yeah. that's coming. Um, yeah. Um, In a few months. Me, I, are you, a few months. Well, lucky you. Um, you seem to have avoided the worst of the queues. Um, are you going to be getting one as well, or are you going to sort of stick with your hybrid? And no, I, yeah, I think I'll probably stick. I'll stick with my hybrid, uh, and um, and just for the time being. But uh, I'll, I'll, um, yeah. I mean, when when there is a when you get a uh, more sort of. A, uh, you know SUV. So we, we, uh, I, you know, we, you know, have uh, uh, farms in the Upper Hunter, and I, you know, I do a bit of country driving. So when there is a fully electric um, 
big SUV the, or a Ute or something the, the, like yeah, that. Yeah, sort of, yeah, kind of a, a yeah, probably not a Ute, but sort of more like, you know, uh, something that's, that's a, you know, high off the road, more of a, a country car that you can take on dirt roads without feeling you're ripping the bottom of it out. So anyway, it's a, it's just a, but I, look, I, to be honest, I don't drive a lot, you know, I, but when I drive, I drive very rarely in Sydney. I almost invariably get public transport. I've been, that's, I've been like, I was like that before I went into politics. I was like that when I wasn't politics. Um, I basically, the only time I drive really, uh, apart from occasional trips to the city is very occasional is um, to go up in, in uh, up to uh, the Hunter, you know, and I, mm. I do a lot of interests up there. Oh, well, let's hope that you can get one of those um, EVs high off the road sometime soon. Um, soon yeah, yeah, well, I'm, sure, I'm sure we will. I mean, it, there's no question that, that, you know, that, that that's, that's just a question of, that's just a matter of time. And I mean, the, yeah. the, uh, uh, you know, the, I mean, I, I, I've driven, yeah, anyway, I've driven quite a few hybrids over the years and they are, you know, they're, they're, but they're clearly, a, they're, they are definitely, it's definitely a transition technology. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right, well, Malcolm, I feel like we could talk out much longer, but I do appreciate the time okay. that you have given us. And um, Giles, so good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Jet Charge, Australia's leading experts in EV charging. Operating nationwide, JetCharge helps businesses and drivers find cost-effective ways to charge their EVs. From home chargers to vehicle-to-grid integration to the largest EV charging projects in the country, JetCharge are paving the way for our electric future.